Hey, I'm Scott, one of the pastors with Artisan, uh, but most of you know that, and glad to be with you in this way. Um, I'm just going to piggyback right off of where Jesse and Terry left off. I'm going to read a passage from Matthew 22, verse 33 to 40, and I'm going to read it in the First Nations version. When the separated ones, also known as Pharisees, heard how he silenced the upright ones, or Sadducees, they put their heads together and came up with a plan. One of them, who was an expert in tribal law, would put him to the test. The expert came to him. Wisdom keeper, he asked, which instruction in our tribal law stands first? Creator sets free, or known as Jesus, answered him, you must love the great spirit from deep within, with the strength of your arms, the thoughts of your mind, and the courage of your heart. This is the first and greatest instruction. The second is like the first, he added. You must love your fellow human beings in the same way you love yourselves. The law, the words of the prophets all find their full meaning in these two instructions. The word of the Lord. We've been uh, 14 weeks now in uh, a series uh, called The Third Way. Uh, so question for you as we enter this 14th week of this series, is it becoming clearer? Or is it muddy or murky? Are you pros at living the third way already? Maybe you're still thinking, what is the third way? What does it even mean? What does it all mean? What does existence mean? What am I doing here? Well, I'm rest at ease. I'm going to explain a little bit of that. And to uh, quote Nelson, because he said it so well a few weeks ago. Also, I have a, a side joke with him. He's writing a book, and I'm trying to experiment with ways of spelling his name uh, so he can have ideas for how to spell his name on his book uh, cover. Uh, so Bishop N.J. Boschman said, a few weeks ago, we're asking ourselves in this third way series what it means to practice the way of Jesus in our day. A way that often subverts the either orness of our wider culture. And in the face of conflict and ever widening gaps between people groups, invites us into a radically hospitable, peacemaking posture. I love that. Radically hospitable, peacemaking posture. I think that, that really encapsulates the idea of the third way. Or like the old proverb says, when presented with two options, choose the third. In this series, we've said challenging things like the third way is about learning to embrace those who have a different point of view, replacing judgment with curiosity and learning, with unity as our goal. Um, we've said that the third way is also about being a centered set community with a commitment to Jesus at the center. Now I wanna stop here at centered set because we use this language at Artisan a lot. Um, if you've been around, you'd be familiar with this or maybe just familiar with the word. Um, it's something we've talked about uh, a lot over the years and we're attempting to live into this way of being so 
probably helpful, I thought, to review. And a bit of a guiding question for my sermon today is, how does being a centered set community relate to the third way? Are you with me? Uh, So for this, we're going to need to take a slight detour. And to my utter excitement, uh, we're going to need a whiteboard. So uh, here's the whiteboard. I've not done this in a sermon before, so we'll see how it goes. How's that? There it is, the whiteboard. Um, Centered set thinking was really birthed out of a third way approach to begin with. Originally a mathematical concept, uh, Paul Hebert, an Anabaptist anthropologist, Anthropologist. Thank you. That's why we do this in community. But that is a mouthful anyways. An Anabaptist anthropologist. And he also studied mathematics. So he used the idea of set theory, which is a mathematical term. I have no idea. I'm way out of my depth here. To describe bounded sets, fuzzy sets, open sets, and centered sets. And he used them as different ways of conceiving Christian community and theology. Uh, If you're hoping to nerd out on set theory, that's not what I'm going to do. For that, we'd need to call someone like Craig Peters. Um, And Craig, if you're watching, hello. We haven't even talked about set theory or if you're familiar with it. I just assumed you knew about it because you're basically a human supercomputer. But instead, we're going to use a much more urban analogy, something we're all familiar with in Vancouver, and that is uh, farming and sprawling space. So uh, as far as the eye can see, which is very familiar to us in in Vancouver, that's sarcastic, but it's okay if you didn't get it. So imagine you're in a farmland. Imagine that this whiteboard is hundreds of acres of land. Uh, And on this land, I'm going to pull up my trusty markers here, we have animals uh, all over and lots of animals. There's cows, there's sheep, there's horses, and they're all over, much more than I'm writing there on the, on the whiteboard. And uh, bounded set theory would say that you, to care for these animals, uh, you have several options. First is bounded set. Uh, so we'd set up a strong boundary, like a fence, to keep it all in. There's clear markers, and it keeps your animals in and other animals out, which is really important. But if you're working with hundreds of acres of land, this is actually really impractical. So the other option is a fuzzy set model or open set model, which the borders become ambiguous or even completely non-existent. And that's not very impactful or helpful either. Nothing is really kept in or out. And so a a third way would be centered set thinking, which is essentially, in this analogy, dig a well. Dig a well and be less concerned about the specific borders, but there's an assumption that the animals won't go too far from the well because their life literally depends on wandering too far from the life source. So this is where Paul 
Hebert comes in. Uh, remember the Anabaptist anthropologist that I mentioned earlier? Uh, he suggests that communities of all kinds, and not just churches, establish boundaries to include some people and exclude others. He wrote about this in his book called Anthropological Reflections on Missiological Issues. I'm very cognizant of how much that word is coming up in this sermon, anthropological, but I nailed it. So he takes in his book set theory and applies it to understanding social groups. So in a social setting or in a church, if we go back to the bounded set idea, there's a clear line that is drawn between the church and the world. There's the outside and there's the inside where the church members are required to subscribe to agreed positions on theological and ethical issues and where dissent or failure leads to exclusion. So you have the people that are in and you have the people that are out. Very clear, nice and tidy. Listen to this description of a bounded set community uh, in a church context. This comes from the Anabaptist Mennonite Network, an article um, about healthy and unhealthy bounded set churches. So listen to this, in a bounded set community, new members are inducted into the doctrinal beliefs and ethical behavior expected of them. Teaching, preaching, pastoral care, and encouragement help church members delve more deeply into these beliefs and conform more closely to a lifestyle that is consistent with these beliefs. For many, this process is beneficial, and those who later withdraw from such churches often look back with gratitude to this period when important foundations were laid in their lives. In healthy, bounded, set churches, members are encouraged to develop at their own pace, grow in their relationship with God, and participate in a community where there is mutual accountability. How many of you have been a part of a community or a church like this? But not all bounded set churches are so healthy. They can be marred by authoritarianism, legalism, judgmentalism, and sectarianism. Two basic issues need to be addressed, where the boundaries should be drawn and how the boundaries are perceived. If the boundaries are drawn so as to include a vast array of doctrinal, ethical, experiential, and cultural expectations, there's a danger that members will be excluded or will exclude themselves unnecessarily. Inability to differentiate between essentials and non-essentials can make bounded sets oppressive. Even if less extensive boundaries are drawn, this kind of community may still operate oppressively in the way it perceives its boundaries, discouraging honest questions and doubts, exalting conformity over integrity, standardizing spiritual practices and spiritual experiences, and many other practices, and can result in the marginalization and eventually loss from the community of its less compliant members to the detriment of the individuals and the community. Have you been a part of a community or heard of a community like this? Um, a great podcast recommendation uh, that I just recently listened to, it's 
a brand new by Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. And it's the story of an unhealthy bounded set church that was marred by, uh, like this article says, authoritarianism, legalism, toxic masculinity, to name a few. And I don't know about you, but this is uninspiring to me. And I think the reactionary response is to swing the other way and where there's boundaries, get rid of them. So these were causing the problems. Let's get rid of them. And instead, a third way or the centered set is a community that has a core or a center rather than boundary lines or no boundary lines. And in this case, Christ. Then the question becomes about which direction you're facing. So you could be far away and facing inward. You could be close and faced outward. All different directions. But the question is, where is your feet, where are your feet headed? It reminded me of this quote by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the words are up on the screen. The situation in the actual world, he says, is much more complicated. The world does not consist of 100% people being Christians and 100% being non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergymen. <laughs> there are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. This idea, the centered set community, is not new. Even before C.S. Lewis, even before Artisan, uh, the paradigm, it even brings up some indigenous ways of knowing that are less about defining things and high value on the transmission of knowledge through story. Or even, even further back, it harkens to our, our Christian ancestors in the Middle East and influenced by Jewish and Middle Eastern ways of knowing. So I'm not sure why we're surprised, but we've also, and we don't have time to do this, we've gone through a bunch of different eras, including the modern era, which brought in the Industrial Revolution, the Protestant Reformation, all of these things that helped us or not helped us create these ways of being. And Bounded Set Church sounds a bit like computer church to me. Uh, I'm interested more in Terry and Jesse's flower church idea that they were talking about earlier. Like uh, Pablo, Pablo Picasso said, computers are useless. All they can give you are answers as I say this, in a pre-recorded gathering that will be broadcasted uh, via YouTube. Um, but answers are high value in bounded set communities. But as I'm learning, questions are the doorways to wonder. An up-and-comer blogger uh, said this once. Uh, you can look it up, unstucking. He goes by Lance Odegaard. He also said, if your current answers aren't taking you anywhere, it could be time to upgrade your questions. Love that.
And so the obvious and maybe simple question is, in this context of a centered set community, what is the center? What's at the center? If we desire to be a centered set community, what are we focusing in on? What are we facing our feet toward? It's easy to draw a cross on a whiteboard and say Jesus, but what does that mean? In Matthew 22, there's a story with a similar line of questioning. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. I read it at the beginning. I'll read it again, this time in the New International Version. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Or, Jesus, what's the center? What is the thing that we're to face our feet toward? And here the religious authorities are cornering Jesus with questions. It said that earlier in this chapter, they laid plans to trap him in his words. Then they asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? First of all, it's not a very good question. It's hard to tell what their motive was. Perhaps they wanted clarity. There's so many laws and ways of being and knowing what is the one thing. And Jesus, known for being ambiguous at times, perhaps they're searching for clarity. Um, I mean, Jesus was the person that, when asked what his main central message was, he talked about the kingdom of God. What is that? It's like a woman baking bread. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a farmer sowing seeds. Fifteen times in the gospel account, the question is, or the, the statement is, the kingdom is God is like, and then it's followed by 15 stories that are different on all accounts. He preached an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. I don't, I don't think the religious authorities were being um, curious, though. I think they were more, like it says, they were trying to trap him. So pick one of the things, just say one thing, and we'll tear it apart. I'm not sure what they were thinking. But Jesus answers, and he kind of disobeys the rules. They said pick one thing, and he gave them two. Instead of the one, he puts two things together known as the double love command. Jesus replied in verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. At the center of our faith is a person that person is Jesus Christ. And at the center of Christ's message of an upside down kingdom was love. Love of God and love of others. This is the way of Jesus. Could it actually be this simple? Yet yeah, why do we get it wrong so often? And we often tend to separate love of God and love of people Walter Brueggemann says, one of the misfortunes in the long history of the church is that we have mistakenly separated love of God from love of neighbor, and always they are held together in prophetic poetry. So two questions for you today, very simply, 
Which way are your feet facing? And the second question, how is your life marked by love for God and others? I think we're going to be needed to be reminded of this on a regular basis. If we're to embrace being a centered set, third way Jesus community, it's always got to come back to this. Love, 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 love. We're not going to agree with anyone, uh, with everyone all of the time, and that's okay. Because the goal isn't uniformity, it's unity in Christ. And as we come to the table, which is the center of this faith, I want to close by reading a prayer by Teresa of Avila. And then we'll take communion. If you're doing it remotely, grab some bread, wine, or juice and join. But let's, let's pray this prayer. Wherever you are, just pause. Listen to these words. They'll be up on the screen if you want to read them. Let them wash over you and pray along with them today. Let's pray. Our Lord asks but two things of us, love for God and love for our neighbor. These are the two virtues that we must strive to obtain. If we practice them perfectly, we shall be doing the will of God, and so we'll find the union we seek. The most certain sign that we keep these two commandments is that we have a genuine love for each other, we may not know for certain whether we love God, but there can be no doubt about whether or not we love our neighbor. If we fail to love our neighbor, we are deceiving ourselves if we think that we love God. But if we possess a true love of neighbor, we will certainly attain to union with our Lord. Beg God to grant you true love of others, and you will be rewarded with more than you know how to desire. God will insist that you surrender your self-interest for those of your neighbor, taking upon yourself their burdens. Do not believe that this will cost you nothing and that you will find it all done for you by God. Never forget what the love God bore for all of us cost the Son of God. To free others, his neighbors, from death, he suffered the most painful death of all, the death of the cross.